0: I invite you this morning to turn again to Paul's letter to the Galatians. We're going to read from Galatians 6, the verses 11 through 18. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. And our text this morning is the verses 11 to 13. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law... But they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, do you like your handwriting? Might be a strange question for a Sunday morning. Maybe some of you are thinking to yourselves, I'm glad that I can write at all. Maybe you've never been good at spelling. You're not even thinking about the quality of your handwriting. But it's a serious question. Maybe some of you have received letters from grandparents before, and you admired the long, even strokes of their handwriting. They don't teach penmanship like that anymore. Some of those letters are a work of art. Very few people are still able to write like that today. Maybe you struggle with handwriting, maybe you struggle with writing in general, and You regard your refer to your writing as chicken scratch. Maybe you've joked before. Maybe your friends have joked that you should have been a doctor because no one can read that. Our handwriting is not the sort of thing that we want to draw attention to, and yet in our passage this morning, that is the very thing that the Apostle Paul does. And it's not because his handwriting is so beautiful. In verse 11 of our text, he says, See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. Now, why would he do that? In fact, he didn't even write most of this letter himself. In his day, people often used a professional scribe to help them write a letter. Paul did so as well regularly. There's evidence of that in his other writings. For example, Romans 16 verse 22 has a, has a line in it that says, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. And it's not as strange as it may sound because back in, in those days it was common for someone to, to have a scribe who wrote down the letter. And in our time as well, it used to, it used to be quite common in our time, for a manager to dictate a letter and later get his secretary to transcribe and send it. And Paul dictated this letter as well to the Galatians. But here, at the very end, so to speak, he takes the pen from the scribe and he writes the closing paragraph in his own handwriting. And again, writing some closing comments on his own is not that strange. It was a way of uh, guaranteeing the authenticity of the letter. There was already one example of... uh, of a letter under his own name that didn't come from him that was circulating at that time. So by writing a greeting in his own handwriting, it was a way of verifying that the letter really had, really came from him. And so in Second Thessalonians 3, verse 17 to 18, he writes, for example, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way that I write. But here in this Letter to the Galatians, he makes a point out of drawing attention to his handwriting, specifically to the size of his letters. Why would he do that? It's a little bit odd, don't you think, for an apostle to comment on something like that? It's in the Bible. There must be a reason. Some people think he wrote in such big letters because he couldn't really write in Greek. But is, is that realistic? If you think about it, this was a highly educated man. He was a rabbi. He doesn't seem to have trouble with the Greek language anywhere else when he speaks it. He was literate. Why, why can he not write in Greek? So this is not the issue either. He doesn't refer to his handwriting anywhere else. What's his point? Well, what do you do when you want to make sure that someone doesn't miss a message? You write it in large letters, maybe you underline it a couple of times, all caps, exclamation mark at the end. That's basically what Paul is doing here as well. He's summarizing his main points one more time at the end, the, the main point of, of the letter. As we get into the conclusion here, he, he wants us to understand the main point one more time and really to pay attention to it. And so that's what we're going to do this morning as well. And what is his main point in this text? It is that true faith does not avoid the cross of Christ. And we'll see that this cross is rejected by man, and this cross is accepted by God. Now, this letter has made us spend a lot of time thinking about the core issues of the gospel. And the biggest question is, how does a man or a woman become right with God? It's really the the biggest question that anyone can answer in their life. How do I become right with God? How does that work? And the apostle Paul said, by faith. It's the only way. Remember that back in chapter 3 he said that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So that's how Abraham became right with God. It was through faith. Circumcision came afterwards as a sign and seal of the promises that God made to him. But circumcision itself is not how you become right with God. The only way to become right with God is through faith. And all who share Abram's faith become spiritual descendants of Abraham. That is to say, they share in the blessing that God gives to him, that God promised to give to him. And that blessing is ultimately the presence of God himself. That's the core argument of Paul's letter to the Galatians. That's the gospel, salvation by faith with no works of our own. And the problem, as you would remember, is that the Galatians were being disturbed by false teachers who were adding to that gospel. They were saying, there is one more thing that you need to do to be saved. The men need to be circumcised. Circumcised. And the issue is not the physical procedure of circumcision as such. In verse 15, he actually says, neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision. He says that it's really irrelevant whether or not you are circumcised. Circumcision itself is not the issue. The problem was what it meant to them. Circumcision um, represented taking on the whole Jewish law. Civil, ceremonial, moral, the whole thing. In 5 verse 3, Paul writes, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. So in their context, that's what it meant. Circumcision represented works. And they said you cannot be saved without this. Not long after this letter was written, the same kind of people appear in Acts 15 verse 1 in Jerusalem and they say, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So this is a salvation issue for them. And now we, uh, Paul has spent all of this time fighting these people in this letter, and now we get to the end, and the one thing he hasn't talked about yet is their motives, and that's what he's doing here, and he gives two motives. The first in verse 12 is that they want to make a good showing in the flesh. The second is that they want to avoid persecution, but we're going to talk about the first one. They want to make a good showing in the flesh. Now what does that mean? They want to make a good showing in the flesh. What does that mean? Literally, it means to put forward a good face or to have a pleasant appearance. So the point is that for them, faith is primarily something on the outside. It affects the outside of a person, not the inside. That is to say, faith has to do with ritual. Faith has to do with how you present yourself. That's faith. And the way that you show that that you belong to the right group, that you've done the right things is for the men to be circumcised. Now compare that to the definition of faith in Lord's Day 7 of the Catechism. It says true faith is a sure knowledge whereby I accept as true all that God has revealed to me in his word. At the same time, it is a firm confidence that not only to others but also to me, God has granted forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness, and salvation out of mere grace only for the sake of Christ's merits. This faith the Holy Spirit works in my heart by the gospel. Faith is a matter of the heart. Faith is not about primarily about how you present yourself on the outside. It is an inner thing. It is something internal. Now, obviously, true faith will change the way that you behave, and in that sense, in a secondary sense, it will also change how you present yourself. But that, in and of itself, is not what faith is about. That's the sign of faith, not the prerequisite. Or to put it differently, you keep God's law because you are a Christian. You do not keep God's law in order to be a Christian. Small but critical distinction. And to the Judaizers, religion was all about putting on a good appearance, all about making a good showing in the flesh, all about keeping the Jewish law, not just the Ten Commandments, but the whole thing, beginning with circumcision. And he says, that's what he, that's what he means when he refers to making a good showing in the flesh. The word flesh refers, of course, to circumcision. It is also a reminder of how temporary It is to to put up this this good showing see what these people are proposing is not permanent false religion never is it can never create a permanent change in your hearts you can establish some good habits you can modify some behaviors you can stop doing certain things but none of that has a permanent lasting effect You can make a good showing in the flesh but still have an unconverted heart because true faith is not about external appearances True faith focuses on the cross of Christ. It does not avoid the cross. It does not ignore the cross. It goes straight to the cross. It accepts the cross with everything that the cross says about us. Now many people today are happy to maintain the appearance of faith. It's socially acceptable, even in the world, to make a good showing in the flesh, as long as you don't take it too seriously. Consider, for example, the Victorian Premier Daniel Andrews, who recently stepped down. He He oversaw probably the most progressive state government in all of Australia. He was responsible for a number of very ungodly government policies, including, among other things the so-called anti-conversion legislation. One pastor called it the most significant threat to religious freedom in Victoria. And yet, during one interview, Daniel Andrews said, I am a Catholic. I send my children to Catholic schools. My faith is important to me. It guides me every day. Well, that may be so, but if we ignore what he said and actually look at what he, he did... The faith that he professes has nothing to do with what the Bible would call true faith. It is a faith that that is a good showing in the flesh. It's enough enough religion to, to put on a good appearance, but no more than that. More examples could be given from politics or entertainment of people who profess enough faith to make a good showing but are careful to avoid the cross of Christ. And you should not think that this means that they are not serious. These people are very serious. Consider what Paul wrote about himself in Philippians 3, verse 4 to 6. He's re- looking back on his life when he was an unbeliever. He was Jewish. He was religious, but not he didn't know Christ. And he really had it all together when it came to external appearances. He says, listen to this. You want to talk about external appearances. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the tribe of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He says, I had it all together. But he didn't have saving faith. And then he looks back on that later on in 1 Timothy 1 verse 13, and he says, you know what I really was? He says, formerly I was a blasphemer a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. So he says, when, when it came to being religious, he was the best. But from the perspective of true faith, he was an unbeliever. Because he avoided the cross of Christ. He hated the cross of Christ. And yes, he could quote Scripture, chapter, and verse. But in the end, all of his zeal was worthless because he hated the cross. Why do such people avoid the cross of Christ? Why does anyone avoid the cross of Christ? Because they don't want to be told that they're guilty in the eyes of God. This is what makes the cross so intolerable to unregenerate men. It points out who we really are. It says we are all sinners by nature. And the penalty for sin is death. We will all die. It's a single strongest reminder. We will all die. Most people refuse to consider the possibility of their own death. They refuse to consider the possibility that one day they will need to face a holy and righteous God. There is an entire industry devoted to making people feel as young as possible for as long as possible. It is worth billions. Everybody's in. And think about all of the famous musicians from the past who have become old, but they're still on tour. There are so many of them. Mick Jagger, still singing. Keith Richards. Paul McCartney apparently is coming to Australia again. Leonard Cohen sang right up until the week before he died. What is with these people? They're octogenarian rockers. It's a, it's a crazy thing. What is with them? Everybody's in denial. But do we do any better? Are we willing to submit to what the cross says about us? Destroys our best thoughts about ourselves. It teaches us, as the canons of Dort put it, that all men are conceived in sin and are born as children of wrath, incapable of any saving good. Inclined to evil, dead in sins, and slaves of sin. And without the grace of the regenerating Holy Spirit, they neither will nor can return to God, reform their depraved nature, or prepare themselves for its reformation. That's from chapter 3, 4, article 3 of the Canons of Dort. In other words, it says, We are by nature so hopelessly lost that only the death of the very Son of God Himself on the cross was enough to save us. There's nothing in us that naturally makes us gravitate to the cross. It is God who needs to give us a true faith that, as the Belgian Confession puts it, embraces Jesus Christ with all His merits, makes Him our own, and does not seek anything besides Him. From that perspective, it makes no sense at all to try to make a good showing in the flesh, as our text puts it. There's no point. There's no point apart from the grace that God has shown us through the cross of Jesus Christ, we have nothing. Remember the words of Christ in Mark 8, verse 36 to 38. He says, what will it profit a man to gain the whole world and to forfeit or to lose his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous, And sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in glory of his Father with the holy angels. There's no point in putting on a good showing in the flesh if that means that you forfeit your soul. So far we've seen that one big motive for these people was to put on a good showing in the flesh. But that was not their only motive. Their other motive, as we saw was to avoid persecution. Paul claims in the second half of verse 12 that the reason why these people were pushing circumcision was essentially fear. They do not want to be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Now you're wondering, how does this make sense? If you think about this a little bit, it is a puzzle. Why? you got this group, the Judaizers, who are obviously Jewish, and another group, the Galatians, who are Christians, but they don't come from a Jewish background. Why does it matter to these people that these ones are circumcised? Who, who's going to persecute them? Well, other Jews. They didn't necessarily understand right away, the other Jews didn't always understand right away what Christianity was about. And even when they were, when they did understand, they were not necessarily opposed to the idea of Jesus as, as a Messiah in a general kind of a sense of the word. As long as the Jewish people continue to keep the law of Moses in its entirety. If you want to say that Jesus who was a Jew was also, also the Messiah. You can say that, they said. But you need to keep the law because that's what, that's what makes us right with God. As soon as a true gospel message of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone began to be preached, then they became angry. And if you, if you read the book of Acts, it's interesting that a lot of the persecution that Paul encountered, it wasn't always from unbelievers. It was often from the Jewish communities, his fellow Jews. Imagine then if these false teachers can get all of the new Christians to become Jewish. They, they know, they know that, that this Christian movement is spreading. And um, they, they obviously must have, have had something to do. They must have held on to some of the Christian beliefs. and knew uh, from a historical perspective who Jesus was. So, if they can, what will happen if they can get all of these new Christians to become Jewish again? Then they can show the world that God's true people are still the Jews. And... These Judaizers get lots and lots of credit because look at this. You just made our church membership grow by hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands of people. And they're all Jewish. They're all going to be circumcised. It's actually quite clever. They've really thought this through, these Judaizers. The only thing they don't have is the true gospel. They don't have salvation. The true gospel will always eventually evoke persecution. Is that something we're willing to accept? Are we willing to accept some form of persecution eventually? Are we willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel? Remember what Paul wrote to the Philippians about being persecuted. He wrote, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So to be persecuted for the sake of Christ is not a bad and unexpected thing that that happens to us. That's not a deviation from the the normal, middle-class kind of Christian life that we've all come to expect. Paul says, no, this is a privilege. It is something that God grants to us. It is not just us who are hated by the world. It is God who is hated through us. The cross is rejected by man. Therefore, all that reminds man of the cross is rejected by him as well. So are we, in principle, willing to be rejected for the sake of the gospel? In principle, are you prepared at this moment to be rejected for the sake of the gospel? It may not happen to you to the same degree that it happens to others, but are you, in principle, willing to suffer joyfully for the sake of the gospel? It is not always outsiders who will persecute Christians. Sometimes the deepest hatred comes from within. Remember what the Lord Jesus said to his disciples, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth, I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The cross is rejected by man. We should not be surprised at these verses. Imagine if you were the only person who came to faith in Christ while the rest of your family remained Jewish Imagine today that you live in a Muslim-majority area of the world and you're the only person in your family who becomes Christian while the rest of them stay Muslim. Sometimes we can see a low-level form of suffering for the faith even in our midst. Nothing that drastic, but still a low-level form of suffering even in our midst. For instance, it is quite common in a church to have two groups of youth One group is on the party circuit. They spend time drinking, fooling around, carrying on. They go to church, but it doesn't define them. They probably wouldn't go if their parents didn't make them. What really matters to them in life is their group of friends. Then the other group of youth takes their faith seriously and tries to live it out. Maybe they were invited to a party by the first group once. They thought it would be fun to hang out together, but then when they saw some of the behavior of the first group and questioned it, they were made to feel awkward. They were never invited again. They feel conflicted about that. On the one hand, they understand that the cross is rejected by man, and they want to be faithful to God, but on the other hand, they do feel lonely sometimes. They wish it could be different. They don't always know what to do. Maybe this sounds familiar to some of our Younger members. And so this verse in our text reminds us, verse 13 reminds us that it is not a given that everybody's always on the same page, not even in a church community. And that is why we should also be profoundly grateful when we are. Most of us come to church as families. There are many families gathered here this morning. It's a beautiful thing. It is a beautiful thing to sit in the pews together as family. It's something for which we should be profoundly thankful. And we are. And at the same time, it's a reminder that true faith is about the cross and what it means. So parents should never think that imposing an external form of religion on their children means that they now have true faith. You need to create an environment as parents in which you can talk to your children about these things. And that doesn't need to be a big event. It doesn't even always go so well if you make it a big event. It's often the little habitual routines that you build up where you can carve out the time to talk about these things. Maybe, maybe a, a mother and her children could do the dishes together and, and they talk about matters of faith while they do the dishes. Maybe a father can have that kind of conversation with his children when he picks them up from school. And of course... We should never dismiss the impact that regular faithful Bible reading and prayer can have on our children as well. Sometimes they're listening the most at the one point when you think that they weren't. In all things, true faith does not avoid the cross of Christ. It needs to feature regularly in our lives, in our conversations. This cross is rejected by man. This cross is also accepted by God, which is what we will look at next. Verse 13, Paul makes another bold claim. He says, even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. They do not themselves keep the law, he says. Now, on what grounds can he say that? These are the most law-abiding people you could imagine. And he says they do not keep the law. How, How can he say that? Well, some scholars would say the reason is because these Judaizers are obviously living away from Jerusalem. They're not able to come to Jerusalem regularly for all the temple festivals. So maybe Paul is referring to that. There is truth to that, but that is not the main point that he's making here. The real issue that Paul is referring to is that people are sinners by nature to begin with. And he wrote about that later on in Romans chapter 3. He wrote, there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All people are sinners to begin with. How do we know? Because God gave us his law. Many people have thought and many people continue to think and maybe some of you think even today still that the point of the law was to make us better people, to make us Behave in a way that would make us acceptable in the eyes of God. That is wrong. That is never what the law was for. The law was never meant to make us more acceptable in the eyes of God. In Romans 3, verse 20, Paul points out the problem. He he writes, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. That's what the law does. The law was never meant to make us righteous in the eyes of God because that was not its purpose. God had a different way of making his people righteous. Paul goes on to write, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, though the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. This is how you become righteous, apart from the law. There is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And he says the way to righteousness is through faith in Jesus Christ, in his perfect law keeping, in his righteousness. See, the ultimate problem of the Jews in Paul's day and the Jews today still is is not that they try to keep the law. God wants his people to keep the law. Jesus said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The problem is not that people try to keep the law. The problem is when they think their law-keeping gives them some kind of claim on God's grace. In doing so, they rejected the ultimate fulfillment of that law. Paul describes the problem perfectly in Romans 10. He says, being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. See, when you, when you reject Christ, it doesn't matter how law-keeping of a person you are. You're still not submitting to God's righteousness. God made a way for sinners to become righteous through Jesus Christ. He tried to take any other way. It doesn't matter how good of a person you are. It doesn't matter how kind. It doesn't matter how... how Good your life is, it is in the end a refusal to submit to God's righteousness. It is therefore rebellion. The focus of faith is not works. It was not their flesh. It was not their circumcision. It was Christ's flesh. His circumcision, so to speak, the ultimate circumcision, the cutting away of his life, of his body on the cross. And that's why true faith does not Avoid the cross of Christ. It needs to be kept before us at all times, not just on Good Friday, but on every day of our lives. The cross takes away all claims to self-righteousness, but you know what else it takes away? Listen carefully. You know what else the cross takes away? It takes away all sin. That's why true faith does not avoid the cross of Christ, because this cross is accepted by God. The only thing that is accepted by God the only thing that makes us acceptable. It's all that matters. And then from that perspective, the cross does not always only remind us of our failure and our insufficiency. Yes, we are insufficient, but that is us by nature. God promises to adopt us, and when we respond to that promise in faith, when we believe, we experience that adoption as well. We can know ourselves to be God's children, not because of our works, but because of Christ's, not because of our cross, but because of His, because of His redemption. The cross represents all that is evil about us, and that's why the world wants to reject us and reject it, but it also represents all that is loving about God. And that gives us a great perspective in life. 100 years from now, will it matter? Will it matter whether or not you were popular? Will it matter whether or not you were successful? Will it matter whether or not you wore the right kind of clothing, had the right kind of hair, drove the right kind of car, hung out with the right kind of friends, watched the right kind of movies? Will any of that matter a hundred years from now? Well, would any of these things have mattered a hundred years ago? Do you care whether or not your forefathers and four mothers, spent time with the right kind of people, wore the right kind of clothing, had the right kind of hair, went the right kind of places. Do you care about any of that? No, you don't. You probably don't even know who these people were 100 years ago. And 100 years from now, no one will care about those things about you either. They don't matter. But you can be absolutely sure, 100% guaranteed, that 100 years from now, what will matter most to you will be whether or not you were acceptable, accepted by God. And the only way to get there is through the cross. So embrace the cross, dear brothers and sisters. Don't just leave it for Good Friday to be looked at mournfully and then to be put away again for another year. Embrace it at all times, every day. True faith does not avoid the cross of Christ. It embraces that. And when you have that, you have everything. Amen.